This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Yeah, just looking around the landscape, it's pretty unique. I mean, I come from the mountain, Ruapihu, and the landscape here is not too dissimilar, but it's at a way lower altitude, which is interesting, which must be because of the colder temperatures and the wind that you normally get up at higher altitudes back in on the mainland, but yeah, there's some pretty freaky, like alien looking plants everywhere. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And there don't tend to be like Southern Royal Albatross yeah, hanging out exactly. in Peru, yeah. there, right? Yeah, we're just a couple meters from there, right? Where we are right now, it's pretty special. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, Ko Clerken Cannon Thene. Una Drayton is from Oakune and recently graduated from Ruapehu College, but she's a long way from home right now. We're standing on some peat amongst the tussock just off the boardwalk at Colisle Saddle on Campbell Island. And yeah, appearing out of the mist, tucked between the tussocks, is the magnificent sight of southern royal albatrosses, guarding their nests. But Una's not here to sightsee. She's got some work to do. Uh, right now I'm helping Greer, a geologist, uh, collect peat samples. And we're on Mount Lyle right now. And we're just pushing this gouge into the ground and then twisting it a bit so that it collects um, a core at the bottom and then we pull it out and hand it on to the team who's labelling and recording. Una is one of 11 student voyagers on the 2023 Sir Peter Blake Trust expedition. And we'll get back to Una, Greer and the team later on. But first, I want to zoom out to tell the wider story of this particular trip to Campbell Island, which is part of Operation Endurance. This year we were working with DOC, uh, Met Service, Sir Peter Blake Trust, DTA. Commander Bronwyn Heslop is commanding officer of the Navy ship, the HMNZS Canterbury. Uh, And then we had uh, enablers uh, from Defence, 230 Squadron Communications. We had an amphibious uh, load team. We took iwi, so mana whenua for Campbell Island, uh, uh, Naitahu, from Southland. Uh, We took TUIR, the engineer regiment, um, and of course we took media. Ah, yep, that's me on board to document a two-week operation in the subantarctic islands with a scientific research focus. The idea is that the Defence Forces work with other government agencies, in this case primarily the Department of Conservation and Met Service, but also the DTA, the Defence Technology Agency, to facilitate their work in remote places. And the Canterbury is ideal for the job. We are the strategic sealift ship, so we take 
people, equipment, stores, vehicles, we transport them all around the Pacific. We can take them around the world, but we're designed to do it around the Pacific um, in response to whatever we need to do. So humanitarian aid, disaster relief, conservation efforts. It's got helicopters, boats, landing craft. It's got a massive cargo deck filled with tractor-like machinery and trucks, as well as heaps more space for shipping containers of whatever might be needed. And it can sleep over 360 people. So the arrangement is like this. Government agencies, such as DOC and MedService, get the help they need to do the jobs they need done in far-flung places in New Zealand territory. The Defence Forces gets practice running operations in remote places, working collaboratively across Army, Navy and Air Force, and problem-solving things that crop up. Any time at sea is useful for consolidation and training for my people. So while we've been having other government agencies ashore, uh, we have qualified a helicopter crewman. Uh, my officers of the watch, the, the deck officers um, keeping the ship safe, have all increased their experience. Chefs have been cooking extra, obviously, for more people on board. The seamen got so much time in Zodiacs and and the ribs. The seamen combat specialists work hard. Uh, we had young ABs out driving Zodiacs backwards and forwards. Um, it was very much a full-on effort and a lot of consolidation and experience for people. But... We have what we call the high-risk weather season from November through to March is the cyclone season for the South Pacific. So we are on standby for that. Canterbury is always available. Usually it's responding to things for our Pacific neighbours. This year it's at home. Instead of the two-week planned expedition, the team had one night and two days at Campbell Island before the Canterbury was recalled north to help with the impacts of Cyclone Gabrielle. And so today on Our Changing World, a roller coaster ride through a hectic two days on one of New Zealand's southernmost islands. Motu Uhupuku, Campbell Island, lies 660 kilometres south of Bluff in the wild South Pacific Ocean. But you know, saying the number of kilometres doesn't really get across how remote this island is. When meteorological officer Mike Fraser got attacked by a great white shark down here in 1992, a helicopter had to fly through the night to rescue him. There's no phone service, no internet, no power, no regularly passing boats or planes. So we leave Bluff on the evening of Monday the 13th of February and sail continuously to pull into Perseverance Harbour on the east side of the island on the morning of the 15th. Call the hands, call the hands, call the hands. Wakey, wakey, wakey. It's a stunning morning in the harbour, sunny and clear and bright. In front of us across the water are the low-slung buildings of Beeman Base, a shed down by the wharf, the old Met Service meteorological office, the larger Met Service hostel where people would stay when they manned the office all year long, and the dock hut attached to it. The sides of the harbour slope upwards, covered in a range of green, The highest point of the island, at 569 metres, is Mount Honey on our left. Seabirds dot the water around us. And then, it's go time. The anchor is dropped. Zodiac boats start shuffling people and bags to the island. And the helicopter gets going. First to deploy some equipment on top of Mount Honey for the DTA and dock, 
and then to shuffle all of Doc and Met Services' supplies and tools for their stay and work on the island for the next 10 days. I hop on a boat with the three Kai Tahu representatives, Bob Bowen, Margaret Christensen and Vanessa Horwell, who are headed to a little spot on the edge of the harbour called Lookout Bay, with a bit of a mission at hand. Uh, hi, I'm Bob, uh, one of three Kai Tahu representatives uh, coming south on the HMNZS Canterbury. Uh, one of our tasks is to find a kohatu, a rock, that could have been used as a puka, an anchor stone. Sometimes they were tied, sometimes they were put into a bag or a sack. So, in honesty, it could be any shape, but this one was uh, found previously and uh, reported. So we've come back to find it. So somebody was in Lookout Bay before and spotted this rock and said, that looks like an anchor stone. And, and so now we've come back with the GPS coordinates to have a look. Yes, they've come back. They said it doesn't belong here. They look like it's, it looks like it was out of place and didn't belong on this beach or on this island. It might be that this rock is just a rock, but further testing will reveal if it's come from this island or from elsewhere in the Pacific. If it does prove to be from further afield, we'll never know exactly how and when it got here much like the harakeke bushes on the island, which must have been introduced at some time. But it's exciting to think that this might one time have been a punga or puka in Kaitahu dialect used to anchor a waka. For Vanessa Horwell, this trip is all about reconnection. Um, I think it's just um, yeah, re-establishing that connection with uh, the motu and... Um yeah, coming down here to the Southern Ocean. So, I mean, our people, uh, seafaring people, um, I'm descended from um, Naitahu, who obviously, you know, went on voyages in Waka. There's um, archaeological evidence from um, Mangahuka, Auckland Island from the 13th century. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence, no archaeological evidence here, but I don't think it's been investigated. Um, but certainly um, in recent history, um, this, you know, my um, whānau would have been on ships. There's some stories of um, my great-great-grandfather potentially getting isolated, um, marooned either here or on Bounty Islands. Um, so, you know, like, we were definitely down these ways, um, whether it be, you know, many generations ago or a couple of generations ago. Um, and, you know, this is a really important part of the Kaitahu um, Takiwa. Um, so, yeah, just re-establishing those connections and... and um, passing that on down to our, our um, makapuna and continuing that. And for you going forward, what would you like to see in terms of the connection with this place for Naitahu? Um, I'd like to see Naitahu um, yeah, be, sort of be involved with um, some of the research down here, especially with climate change. Like I think um, it's really important going forward to to keep tabs on that and just to see what we can do to combat that. Combat that. Um, you know, that obviously climate change will have have an effect down here on our taonga species. Um, you know, all the the um, nutrients and upwellings in the ocean, carbon um, sink in the ocean, all those things are pretty reliant on um, or, or may change through climate change, which, you know, who knows what the effects will be. So... Um, yeah, I'd like to see sort of stronger connections um, going forward using Matauranga Māori and um, yeah, getting involved really, getting Fano down here on the ground. 
you know, to see see this for themselves, come and see the Taonga species, see the the uh, hoiho and um, toroa. Yeah. Finding one stone amongst a bunch of stones on this beach sounds tricky, but with a GPS position and photos to match up, Margaret makes short work of it. With the stones secured in Bob's backpack, we hike back along the rocks to Beeman Base, where the helicopter is dropping off supplies, and Defence Force personnel are helping out with clearing a path around the wharf. By late afternoon, all people, equipment and supplies are on the island. Doc and Met Service staff staying there are unpacking, getting set up for the next few days. We head back to the ship, and only then do we hear word of what's been happening on the mainland. Hawke's Bay has been pummeled by rain, forcing a number of evacuations. 90 millimetres fell in the region, turning roads into rivers and leaving residents on rooftops. Reporter Lauren Crump... Devastation of Cyclone Gabrielle is becoming clearer, but there are, there are still communities that are isolated. Two people have died in Hawke's Bay and fire and emergency has confirmed a body has been found in the search for a firefighter who was trapped in a collapsed Muriwai house after a landslide on Monday night. Wairua is completely cut off and hundreds of people have had their homes swamped with water. Mayor Craig Little says they desperately need help. It's not long before the commanding officer comes on over the internal PA system on the ship to announce that the Canterbury has been recalled to help. And by 9pm that evening, the plan is clear. Do as much as possible tonight and tomorrow, then get everybody and everything back off the island for departure tomorrow evening, 6pm. For the Sir Peter Blake Trust team, they spent the first day doing plankton toads to look at the diversity of plankton in the harbour. They have two main goals for this second day. Some zoom off in a zodiac boat to collect kelp samples at low tide at the entrance to the harbour, while the rest land on the island to hike up to Coal Isle Saddle to collect peak cores. And I tag along. Uh, so the first thing we're going to do is collect the gaudroga, and that's going to tell us how deep and how thick the peat is. A really important part of um, when you're out doing field work is your curation of your samples you're taking. You can't assume that you get back to the lab and you're going to remember everything that happened when you're out in the field. Okay? Um, so I'll teach everybody how to do it and we're just going to uh, trust that everyone's doing it correctly. Dr Greer Gilmer works at GNS Science in Dunedin and she's leading this group of students on this morning's field work. And it's a good thing she's got this team, including Una, because there's a lot to get done and not a lot of time to do it in. So we'll need some people helping out with the coring and keeping track of how deep everything is and need some people here who are labelling everything. And we'll do everything together to start off with. Any, any, any questions from anybody? Yes? How far deep? Good question. I'll let you know when we hit the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it starts getting really tough, we will, we'll get to the bottom. Um, yeah, so let's do some, let's do some peak coring. The group get to work. Some are pushing the core down into the earth, twisting and pulling it back up to extract cylinders of peat, which are then photographed, transferred, wrapped, labelled and stored by the others. And they keep going, until the peat changes to something else. What have we got? Um, Hopefully, some grey sediment. Hey, look at that! So we've got the really dark brown peat, and then when we push the um, cora down, we um, you can feel it go kind of dunk on down there, and then I uh, put my back into it, put my weight on it, and we managed to collect some of the um, 
kind of dark grey glacial sediment. You can see the, the contact there where the peat has started accumulating on top of that. So I guess the assumption is, is this was deposited during the last glacial maximum and this peat has been deposited on top since then. So what's next for all this peat? Uh, so we're going to take it back to the University of Otago um, and then we're going to collect samples for radiocarbon dating and we're going to scan it with the um, Geotech and then we're going to scan it with the ITRAX XRF to um, have a look at some different element ratios and see um, if we can develop that as a non-invasive proxy for doing paleoclimate reconstructions in peat. So ultimately, in however long it takes, you'd like yeah. to end up with a story of what was going on in the island yes. from present day all the way back to the last glacial um, maximum. Yes, that is correct. Yes, and see what has happened to, um, see what's changed on with the climate on the island, if we can get uh, reconstruct um, changes in the strength or location of the westerly winds, what's that done to the precipitation, stuff like that, and because that's really important for us to understand what's going to happen to the westerly winds in the future. Why, why westerly winds? Why are you focused on the westerlies? Uh, westerlies are they're a really important component of the southern hemisphere climate system and even the global climate system, really. Um, so they really influence um, climate and rainfall and stuff from the southern part of um, New Zealand all the way down kind of to the Antarctic margin. Um, where they uh, play a big role in um, deep water upwelling and um, carbon sequestration um, in, in the Southern Ocean. So, All right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, you want to see what's going to happen. If the past can give you any clues as to what's going to happen in the future in a changing climate. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's exactly what we'd like to do. The core recovered, we head back down to Beeman Base, where I run into an exhausted but happy-looking Steve Knowles the network operations manager for MetService. Now, not all the jobs that the teams have planned for this trip are as glamorous as collecting peak cores. MetService is focused on a bit of a cleanup. So we were uh, washing out the old diesel tanks that are still down here, the bulk storage diesel tanks that we used when the base was manned for um, supplying diesel for the generators which ran 24 hours a day. So this was back in the day when people would come down here and live for 12 months mm -hmm. um, to take the weather measurements. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we were doing observations three, every three hours, balloon flights for a period of time twice a day, one at midday, one at midnight. And um, yeah, we were providing um, weather data back to New Zealand to fill in this gap in this part of the world. And when you say we, it, this is not a metaphorical we, this is an actual we, because you were one of those people. Yeah, yep. So I was down here from uh, about August, September 1990 through to October 1991. And what age were you at the time? Uh, I would have been 22. And what was that like? What was the experience like? Um, it's a brilliant place. I mean, the wildlife here is pretty amazing. Great tramps um, or hiking. It's um, it's like living in New Zealand, but above the uh, uh, in the alpine areas. But at a lower altitude. Yeah, you know we're at sea level here, but it can snow any day of the year to sea level down here. And fast forward to today, and the bases are no longer manned. No, so we closed closed the base in '95, and so we have automated the weather observations. We have two automatic weather stations down here now. Um, we use two because the 
Campbell Island is so remote, it's difficult to get down here if, uh, if there's a uh, sense of failure. So we can swap between the two automatic weather stations um, and still get a full set of data. And as you said, it's important data because it's a kind of, it's a very empty South Pacific Ocean and Campbell Island fills a little gap in that emptiness. Yeah, yeah, it's a very data sparse area of the world and um, the data we, we received back in Wellington, it's sent out globally um, and ingested into global weather models. So we're doing our part for the, the world global weather models. So the technology has moved on and those big diesel containers are no longer needed. Were you able to get them emptied and, and taken off the island? Um, so we've emptied them. Uh, we don't have the equipment on this trip to cut them up, but um, that'll be a future, future oper operation endurance. We'll get that done. Now, you thought that you were going to have a few days to do this task, but it turns out you only had a day and a night. How did that work out? Well, when we found out during uh, dinner last night that we were going to be leaving the island um, today, the boys put in some extra hours, everybody chipped in, um, Army, Air Force and um, uh, Met Service contractors, Met Service, and uh, we worked through till 10.30 last night um, as long as we could with the ambient light that we had and uh, we managed to get the, the bulk of the tanks um, cleaned out and we just finished the job this morning. So um, the residue that was inside the tanks has been removed from the island now and the tanks are all prepped for cutting up in the future. Awesome. So that was kind of the high priority job and, and you've got it ticked off the list. Yep, yep, we've ticked that one off. Were there other things that you didn't get around to that hopefully you'll be able to next time you're down? Yeah, there's always other things we um, need to do down here. Um, we've managed to do a little bit of maintenance as well, clearing gutters and um, things like that. Um, knocking back the moss around the uh, the building on the concretes and um, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, but... Yeah, the diesel tanks were our main priority and, yeah, we're happy that we got that done. Has the island changed a lot since when you lived down here? Yeah, yeah, so uh, the bird life here has really taken off. So when I was here in the 90s, the island was overrun with rats. There were also cats here and the last of the sheep were still here as well. Um, so Doc have eradicated all of those and since then the vegetation has really come away. Um, there's bird life here that we never saw when I was living here and um, yeah it's it's just quite amazing the difference that the pest eradication has made down here. And uh, people thought that during you know Covid isolation that their Zoom parties were a new thing but I hear that you were doing that back in 1990 with other weather stations. Yeah yep so uh, we didn't have Zoom or internet down here. We had single sideband radio, but we would talk to other bases around the uh, Pacific and Antarctic. So we would talk to Rail Island. Um, we would talk to Scott Base, McMurdo, and the Australian stations, uh, Mawson and Casey, also uh, Macquarie Island. Um, we would get together in the evening, play darts, chess, that sort of thing. So... My team, the team that I was in was a team of five. You get together with another group like that and although it's still only five people in the room, it seemed like we had a, 
a big party going on. At the dock hut, a whole bunch of people are getting stuck into tidying and organising all of the gear back off the island. Doc brought quite a large team on this expedition. With delays due to COVID, it's been a while since they've been down here and nature can do a lot of reclaiming in a few short years, especially somewhere as remote and wild as Campbell Island, visited only by the few eco-cruise tourists that are granted permits. But the island has many kilometres of boardwalk and several huts used by researchers. This then was supposed to be the time that they got stuck into a whole lot of hut and track inspection and maintenance as well as Hoiho, Sea Lion and Southern Royal Albatross research work. They did still get an impressive amount done in one day. The Albatross team deployed 29 geolocator tags and 12 nest cameras to track bird movement throughout the season. The Hoiho team put satellite tags on nine adult birds, which will give them a bit of data of where these birds are foraging. They also took some blood samples, which will let them do some checks on the health of the population. Chatting in one of the rooms in the hut, field team leader Charlie Barnett tells me that they also fixed a hole in the roof, did some boardwalk assessment and tested some new communication methods. Um, we've set up this time for the first time Starlink, which worked rather well and we were able to get communication back to the mainland. Uh, we've also managed to set up a permanent repeater based on the island. Uh, and that's done very well. There's still a couple of locations we're unsure how it will perform. But at this stage, it's really clear comms and has been working very, very well. The repeater was flown up to Mount Honey and installed there. It takes in a radio signal at one frequency and pushes it back out at another, essentially amplifying it. So it's easier to communicate to a wider area around the island when researchers are there. They've also done some inventory to help for their next trip, which Charlie hopes will be towards the end of this year or early next. Campbell Island is 660 kilometres away from the mainland uh, and getting down here takes two days worth of sailing on um, the HMNZ Canterbury. So it is quite tricky to get our supplies down here and especially being uh, so remote, if we forget anything that means we cannot do that task. So there's a lot of months worth of planning goes into this. We're, we're basically already planning for our next trip and we haven't even left the island. And to do that yeah, it takes a lot of foresight and a lot of um, ca capturing data of what needs to be done. Packing up the supplies that were dropped here just yesterday, Charlie too looks exhausted. But in comparison to others right now, he says, his worries are small. Yeah, all our thoughts are going out to the families that have been hit by this. Um, we've, yeah, we're all a bit upset that we didn't get the time we could, but at the same time, like, it's not about us right now. Uh, we we don't have the same eggs to fry that other people do. It's not a great situation from what we've been able to receive from from the North Island. So this is actually um, a minor inconvenience, but there's a whole lot bigger picture going on. And the Canterbury, she's needed to be used as the way she's designed to be used. And it's to help help those in need at the moment. on our way to launch a wave buoy for uh, DTA and then we will be heading north to Littleton where we will uh, get another two weeks worth of stores, 
food and there will be maintenance support for us. Um, and we will then become part of Opafina. Thank you everyone for your efforts for Op Endurance. Now to make sure that everyone is on board safely, we will go to muster stations. Hands to muster stations, hands to muster stations. Opafina is the name the Defence Force has given to the efforts to clean up after Cyclone Gabrielle. After deploying a tethered wave buoy that's part of an international network to help wave modelling, the Canterbury points north, with the course set for Littleton. And Commander Bronwyn Heslop is focused on what comes next. Many of us have family in the East Coast, Hawke's Bay, many from north. Um, my parents are in Hastings and we didn't have communications for 24 hours when the comm station in Auckland went down. So there was people wondering while we were down there cut off how everyone was coping up north. Um, and now we get to go and help them. So yeah, everyone's excited to come and do our bit. Thanks to everyone I spoke to who featured in this episode. Una Drayton, Commander Bronwyn Heslop, Bob Bowen, Vanessa Horwell, Dr. Greer Gilmer, Steve Knowles and Charlie Burnett. There are many others that I spoke to who helped fill in context and background to this episode. So thanks also to Jacob Anderson, Margaret Christensen, Oscar Brady, Chantelle McLaren, Glenn Popata, Pete McComb, Mel Young, Claudia Mishler, John McCarroll and Sharon Trainer. This episode was produced by me, Claire Cannon, with help from Liz Garten and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by William Saunders and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Previous Our Changing World presenters Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna have also been part of expeditions to New Zealand's subantarctic islands across the years. You can find some of these episodes listed on our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Cannon. Have a great week. Kia pai, po wiki.